I think that's the next thing I'm going to write about is people showing up. Um, it's been a huge, huge help to have people visit with us and, and you know, be with us. Um, and especially people who are not uh, afraid to be with us in the pain um, and, you know, the glory. There, there's, there's both, right? But yeah. there were, I would definitely say that after Will died, there were people who just couldn't be that close to the pain um, and dropped off immediately. And then people who we weren't even that good friends with who just, you know, recognized this was a thing they could do and stepped up and have been wonderful friends uh, since. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time, let me introduce myself. My name is Lisa Kefauver, and I'm a social worker, former therapist, widow, and founder of Reimagining Grief. I'm also the creator and host of this podcast. In today's episode, I was joined by a very special human. His name is Kelly Abbott. I'm Kelly Abbott. I am a grieving dad, and my uh, my company is a tech company here in San Diego, and I'm a CTO. Um, but I write a lot about my son's death, and that's how you found me. Joining me on a call from his home in San Diego, Kelly was open, thoughtful, and at times poetic about the journey he and his wife have been on for the past five years since his son Will drowned a few months before his fifth birthday. He shares what it has meant to him to have people show up for he and his wife Stephanie in the beginning and now. He explores what it means to do the work of grief. He reflects on how the nature of relationships are amplified in the face of great tragedy, and he opens up about the powerful impact EMDR therapy has had in his healing. He shares sweet memories of Will and the wisdom that his passing has offered him. I'm so grateful to know him, to now call him a friend, and to introduce him to you today. Thank you so much for um, responding to my, I don't know, what was it, LinkedIn message or something where I said mm -hmm. I was so moved by the article that you published on medium.com. Um and you were gracious enough to respond to a complete stranger who uh, saw your grief story and connected with it. And and here we are today having this conversation mm -hmm. for our podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Um, so thanks for joining me. You're welcome. So I would love to start today's conversation like I start all of the episodes on this series. And that is just to ask you to reflect and explore a little bit about what your earliest memories um, experiences of grief were in your growing up? What were the behaviors and expressions and, and uh, maybe spiritual or practical or other resources that you saw folks relying on? And what did that teach you, do you think, sort of positively, negatively, neutrally, uh, about how you showed up for the grief experience we're going to talk about today? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot in that. So, and we'll take them one, one by one, I guess, but my earliest, my earliest, uh, encounter with grief was in, in middle school, 
there was a boy who had cancer and died and he was in our close friend set and his name was Steve. And, you know, we spent a lot of time at his house and hanging out, especially in the last year when he was getting really sick, it was pretty apparent that, you know, there was as much impetus from his parents and him and all of us to just spend as much time together. So when he died, it wasn't a surprise at all. Um, but it was the first time I had been, you know, really impacted by death at all. Even, you know, pets that we had had, I don't think any of them had died, mm. um, at that point in my life. So it was the first time that I kind of got really scared by death. Um, and I think my reaction at that point was, was fear, you know, yeah. I was very, um, I was very preoccupied with the fact that the Russians were going to nuke us and we were all going to die. And my dad is a smoker and he's going to die. And I mean, it was nutty. I just turned pervasive, into this, just sort this of everywhere. social justice warrior, you know, anti nuke guy from like the age of 12. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I was determined to save the world, you know, like just really scared of death. Yeah. Um, and was and then, this loss in particular triggered that, or were you already sort of social justice and activist minded, or this you're saying this? Yeah, sort of I mean, my my mom constantly cursed the news at night, so it was definitely in our DNA and definitely a part of our, you know, average six o'clock news Peter Jennings type, you know, yeah. upbringing. Yeah. Um, but you know, it really went into high gear in middle school and. Um, you know, obnoxiously so. I was very determined to make sure everybody knew that shit wasn't right and then we we're going to need to fix it. And um, you're leading the charge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I don't know if that Steve's, Steve's death, death was anything more than a catalyst for that. Um, but my, in terms of grief, um, you know, that's how I dealt with it. I mean, that is just how... You know, oftentimes I have this conversation. I'm in the CTO, CTO world here, which, as you know, is sort of a male world. Yeah. And um, and I always tell, you know, folks who hear my story, especially the CTOs, I'm like, you know, anger is male sadness. And it's, you know, you're it's fine to be angry. It's fine. But call it what it is. Like, you're not happy. And, you know, it's not it's not injustice. It's not anything. You're sad. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, it took me a long time to come to that. Yeah. Um, Were you able to express that kind of sadness as a teenage boy at that time? Or did it look like anger for you then? Oh, it looked like anger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. all anger. Yeah. You know, even up until, I would say even up until Will's death, it was, a lot of my processing of sadness was that way. I mean, my mom died a year before my son died. Okay. And I was bitter, you know, I was really pissed, not obviously at her. Uh, I love her, but just like, you know, tired of fucking losing, you yeah. know, like yeah. it was just getting on me. I was 40 years old or close to 40 and just felt like I'd been kicked a number of times. And I was just, when mom died, I was pissed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what grief was yeah. looking like in its totality for you at that time was just yeah. kind of anger. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, and then I would say that the, the, the hardest I grieved up until my mom's death 
was when uh, my best friend growing up, his name is Eric, and we're still really good friends. And we met when we were one and our parents loved to tell the story about how we met at preschool and made them become parents. And it was like, <laughs> awesome. He's yeah. like my guy. Um, and his older sister was, so this was maybe a year after Steve died. So his older sister uh, died. She was, she died uh, on her 16th birthday and it was a month. She was in a coma for like a month. And before that she was real sick with this um, respiratory virus and, um, and, you know, I remember going to the hospital with them and making paper cranes and just being around, being around them more than I was around Steve's family Yeah. and yeah. around Eric's family. They were family. Right. Right. And so her death affected me, but also just being around them and seeing how, how sunken their eyes were and how slow things came and how, you know, how tasteless everything became. And, you know, he, it's just all the senses get dulled. And even just as a witness to that, I could, I could see what it was like. And that, that had a pretty big effect on me. Um, I think at that point I was like, okay, well, you know, cause I was still a kid and I'm yeah. still trying to process how to deal with this stuff. I'm like, I'm going to get motivated into action. I was like, well, I got to be a doctor now, you know, like I got to fix kids who have respiratory illnesses. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not the Russians anymore. It's the viruses. <laughs> you took that social justice and turned it in a new direction. Yeah. 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 Well, we want, I mean, you really that out loud for the first yeah. time. It's interesting that I became a technologist because it's really just bug fighting all day. Just it is bugs. bug fighting. You know, I did the so only thing I was going to reflect back to you there that you were saying about your sort of social justice and then wanting to be a doctor is I think some ways you might interpret that as is what we all want to do when we're faced with something horrific and painful, which is we want to fix it. We want to mm. fix. And I think you and I have spoke before about um, often when people come to attend to us and our story, it's really hard for them to not show up in a fix it mentality. It's hard for all yeah. of us. And the way you were dealing with your grief as a young man was thinking, okay, I'm going to come up with some solutions now. Mm-hmm. And now you do this for a living. <laughs> come up yeah. with solutions. Yeah. You know, years of therapy and actually that never came up. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got some new material for January. Well, there you go. Um, my, my social work training is coming in handy today. That's for mm-hmm. sure. What did you see, you know, so your parents were watching you lose two close friends um, as a young person. And I often think that we are modeled what it looks like to grieve from our family, you know, from our parents, especially growing up. What did, were they, did they model a don't talk about it, don't show your feelings, do show your feelings? What, What were you learning from the people around you or even maybe Steve's parents or Eric's parents about what it looks like to express grief from, from adults in your life? Yeah, I think that definitely the model that I had was a kind of waspy, get shit done approach. Um, And, you know, this is, there's a dichotomy because my parents were very, they were very, you know, hip to the psychology of, I mean, they were were artists. So they, they were all about feelings. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, getting stuff down on paper or expression, like, like that was all like part of their ethos and definitely modeled that but I just think that from the way that they approached life it was all about do 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 like just get into action gotcha and you know um and my mom you know it's funny my mom was pretty inspirational 
in terms of kind of setting me up for being aware of what other people are going through and what they're feeling. Yeah. Um, because she railed against injustice. You know, she was, she grew up in a, in a Nazarene family that was really, really strict. You know, her sister, she was the protector of her sister because her mom was going through all these divorces, like married man after man after man, and they were all losers and treating them badly. And my mom grew up protecting her, mm. her younger sister, who was five years younger. And then her sister, as you know, as fate would have it, would have it, is a lesbian. And so I grew up with an aunt who was, you know, like the first among the first people to be out, mm. you know, but not with her family. Like it couldn't be with her family except for my mom. And my yeah. mom was such a protector of her and really angry at the world about the way that they were treated. Mm. Meaning my mom, the way my mom was treated, the way her sister was treated, the way anybody who was, you know, a minority or, you know, without power, um, inherent power was treated. So, um, so that's how I, you know, that's how I learned to deal with like, emotions and yeah 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 um you know fight for fight for for what you need yeah what you need you get what you negotiate that kind of thing yeah and so um so from her I got a lot of that and she was also you know really sweet mom like mom very caring and you know we could always talk and um you know I love being around her but anger was her way of of making things right yeah yeah so you learned that too you know mm-hmm. and there's a lot mm-hmm. of there's a lot of beauty in that too and there's a lot of things get done you know and changes can happen sort of out of mm-hmm. that yeah mm-hmm. so you have had a lot of losses before the time came when you and your wife and your son David um, lost your son Will two friends mm-hmm. and your mom quite close into that mm-hmm. loss do you want to share what is it that you want to share with us about the experience of losing Will and what you notice now looking back. How many years has it been? Three? It's been four, a little over four years. Four you know? years. Four years. Um, well, this is a harder, harder loss for sure. Um, you know, there's, there's something to be said for losing friends and even at a young age um, and losing uh, losing parents at an older age and, but then, but losing your kid, that was nothing. Um, I don't think anything I was truly prepared for. Um, I I definitely think I have the kind of mindset that's a very rational mindset that this stuff happens and nobody's immune to accidents and nobody's immune to chance. Um, and so, you know, in a way I kind of rationalized it as a, you know, the the wheel of fate turned on us and that's that's the way things happen sometimes um it's not fair and it's not right but it's just that's how everything works so uh so there was a bit for me it was like okay well i can rationalize that but god damn man i was just crestfallen i had and i still you know still very powerful sudden emotions pop up where you're just deep in grief mm-hmm. and um and I don't feel that for my mom my dad recently passed away and I don't don't feel, don't feel that for dad um I don't feel that for Steve I don't feel that for Hillary but I feel that 
almost every day for Will. I know my wife feels it every day for Will. She's often, you know, um, easily brought to tears and that's, that's part of our life now. Um, but for me, you know, in a way it's almost like I can feel it building. There's this crescendo where a couple of days has gone by and I haven't had a good cry. And so I'm like, Oh, I need, I know what I need now. You know, that tense feeling I have in my heart. I know what I need now. I need to cry. (laughs) so I'll go to Google photos right or YouTube and pull up some videos and just be like all right here it is and then spend you know the next half hour communing with Will I love that expression communing with Will that's Mm -hmm. really beautiful There is at once a deafening silence and the din of so much noise after someone you love dies What Kelly reminds us is that losing a child only amplifies the volume to a deafening level. Yet, they had Will's older brother David to attend to. So in many ways, life had to keep marching on. I shared with Kelly the haze surrounding me in those early days after my husband's death, coming home from the hospital to tell our seven-year-old daughter that her dad was gone and yet understanding immediately a need to keep marching on, camp for her, making memorial arrangements for me. So I asked Kelly to reflect on what he remembers out of the fog and din of those early days after Will's death. You know, it was a very unique moment only because it was the transition from school to summer. It was exactly at that point. In fact, the Will died at a at a matriculation party. Mm-hmm. So, um, or I should say, his accident was at the matriculation party. He died a few days later, but his the you know the the things that I remember from let's say those next two weeks were school ending, um, summer camp starting, uh, baseball season being kind of almost ending. David's Little League, um, you know, and us just kind of figuring, oh, we also had to move. We were in the middle of a move from one house to another. I mean, it was like that, that was what we were doing. We just had to kind of do stuff. Keep keep (laughs) moving, literally, literally moving, but also keep moving one foot in front of the other. Yeah. 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 So, you know, Will didn't get to move into our new house, but he saw it, you know, he got to visit it before, um, you know, there's just, it's like that sort of, that was what was happening right at that time. And those are kind of the memories. We also had a a pretty strong showing from the community. Um, You know, the little league community was surrounding us and the school community was surrounding us and just our local neighborhood, you know, they all knew what was going on and surrounding us. Um, And so I remember people showing up I remember people bringing food, food, and <laughs> food, food we food. need, and, um, you know, people were using money. We didn't need it, but they were felt like they needed to do something, I guess. So just stuff like that was happening um, around us. And those are the those are the big, broad memories of it. The, the really tiny memories are stuff like, um, you know, me very desperately wanting to put Will's clothes in a Ziploc bag so that I wouldn't lose the smell. Mm. Um, 
you know, or laying in his bed. Um, 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 being with um, Stephanie and David, um, probably I don't have any real prescient memories of those um i guess it seems like i was the stuff that's really stuck with me are the times i was alone with with the thought of will yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. thank you for sharing that Mm -hmm. with me reminds me of the sort of ways in which to be struggling in your grief and having to be attending to other people's grief in that moment. Sometimes it's a blessing, I think. For me, I found that in some ways when I had to sort of shut myself down and attend to my daughter, to Lily. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's hard because all you want to do is steal yourself away and have those... um, conversations. I used to, I still do. I used to have conversations with Eric all the time and I didn't want to do it in front of Lily and confuse a seven-year-old. Why was I talking to, you know, her dad who wasn't there? So um, you sort of sharing that balancing of stealing away time for yourself, I think is something that many of us, many of us can relate to. I'm curious to know, how did you and your wife know how to talk to David about what Will's death meant and how does he make meaning of that and and practical decisions like sending him to summer camp the next week or the two weeks. I, I do remember driving my daughter to camp a few days later thinking yeah. this is completely absurd, but yet I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, well, what I had modeled to me when Hillary died was that you 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 don't stare you don't turn away from death you look right at it yeah and um and so you know seeing hillary in the hospital in a coma and i mean even though it's just those details stick with me still to this day like you know they had this gel that was on her eyelids that kept the uh -hmm. kept the eyes closed um the way the respirator would move her chest um in this sort of mechanical you know motion um, you know, so if I, that, that came right back up to me after Will had died. I was like, Oh, or during the process, I was like, this is, this is what you do. You, you face it okay. head on. Yeah. And so, um, and David was seven when this happened. So he was very young for, to be able to process this. And I'm sure these memories, he's got a photographic memory anyway, but I'm sure these memories will be very important to him later on. But we made sure that he was, at the hospital with Will, okay. Um, that he could see Will, that he could spend as much time as he wanted with Will. Um, it really scared him, and he actually spent a lot of time at the Ronald McDonald House with with my brother as a result, playing video games or playing soccer. Or yeah. But um, but even after Will passed, and we had come home, and there's now just the practical matters of life, we immediately invoked his memory. I mean, we were 
from the very beginning talking about Will okay. and what we loved about him and what we missed about him. And, um, and I think that, you know, now it's a tradition <laughs> just, and it's not painful at all to talk about Will and, you know, other than the fact that we've lost him, we have very fond memories and we have pictures all over the house and, you know, he's, he's with us, you know, we, we have this penny thing, you know, pennies from heaven. So whenever we find a penny, it's Will talking to us. And, oh, I love that. You know, it's an excuse to invoke his memory and, and, you know, now that we have, we have a two-year-old now, <laughs> um, her name is Sloan and, uh, and she's doing so many will like things. So that's bringing, it's bringing the will memories up every day. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we just really leaned into it. We, we really knew, knew instinctively, I think that this was not something to be shameful of and not something to be scared of, but to be very, very committed to, at least in our house, talking about it. Yeah. I tell David, it's, it's his choice. He can talk about it or not. Um, and, you know, and I even struggle, I tell them that I even struggle, you know, if I meet somebody for the first time, I'm not telling them that I have a, a dead son. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm telling them about my two living children and if we become better friends, maybe then I'll bring them in the fold, but, um, it's his but story to share to the home life. We definitely talk about Will all the time. We don't shy away from it. Yeah. You're really teaching him. It's his story to share or not. Mm -hmm. We're challenged every day, though, because I can imagine people meet you and say, how many kids do you have? And Or it asks him, how many siblings do you have? And so we're constantly negotiating, those of us who are experience loss, the kind of calculations every time we enter some new social setting about what it is we're going to share or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm so appreciative of the way in which you immediately began sharing the stories and using Will's name and saying saying his name. And I'm just going to read just one of the things that really stood out to me of the many things that stood out to me in this in the beautiful piece of work that you wrote um, and published on medium.com was hearing his name brings me out of the days and back into a safe space where my love for him is better focused. And that just really struck a chord for me personally, um, who now spends most of my days sort of professionally and personally talking um, about Eric and sharing stories of him and his name. Have you encountered, how have you encountered people in your life, sort of either new people who have come into your life since Will's death or those who knew you struggling to say his name or not, worrying about whether bringing up his name is going to make you upset or not? What has that looked like in terms of uh, people being able to show up and, you know, be a part of carrying Will's memory forward? with you what does that look like for you I think that's the next thing I'm going to write about is people showing up um it's been a huge huge help to have people visit with us and and, you know be with us um and especially people who are not uh, afraid to be with us in the pain um and you know the glory there there's there's both right but there were I would definitely say that after Will died, there were people who just couldn't be that close to the pain yeah. um, and dropped off immediately. And then people who we weren't even that good friends with who just, you know, recognized this was 
a thing they could do and stepped up and have been wonderful friends uh, since. So, um, you know, people showing up is just an incredible, incredible support factor. I cannot, I just cannot thank them enough. Yeah. Um, I had a buddy who, uh, who I was very good friends with when I was a kid and actually, um, you know, we were just soccer buddies. We, we would, we traveled on a soccer traveling soccer team and our families were, were soccer families, I guess. And, um, and I hadn't, you know, I had, we just fallen off the radar with each other. It was easily 20 years since we last spoke and 30 years since we had really been tight, tight friends. And when he learned about Will's death, I don't even know how he learned about it. Um, he flew out from Cleveland and stayed with us for like a week. And then, you know, when we came home from the hospital, he was helping organize things and God, I mean, we're such good friends now. It is like rekindled. Yeah. So much of what we once had has just come right back. Um, and I don't know where he got that from. Like he, he's a special guy. Like he, he, he did that, you know, I didn't ask it of him. He just showed up and then. There was no tentativeness about his, his, interest or how he's showing up. He wasn't dancing around it or trying to figure out how to be the least intrusive. He just had some kind of instinct that said, I need to be there and be practical. And yeah. 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 Thankfully he was in a spot where he could do that. And, um, I'm really happy that he did that. That's, you know, we still have a friend who's, who lives, lives closer. Um, so we're in San Diego. Kirk is his name. He's in Cleveland. Um, but we have a friend here in San Diego who just every once in a while texts us and be like, there's coffee on your doorstep. <laughs> it's like, I love that. You are amazing. Like, I don't deserve this. You know, you're doing it too much now. Like, stop. But it's just a token. He's like, you know, he just says, I'm thinking of you, man. That's, you know, and that's his gesture. That is beautiful. And also, this is a quick plug to any of my local Austin friends who want to just drop off a coffee at my door. <laughs> you know where I live. You can do it. Um, I think that's so beautiful because one of the things I talk often about um, in my writing as well, I do writing a lot and and other interviews I've done is um, the ways in which we get in our own heads about what we should say or not say or what does showing up look like or not. And then we end up often not showing up or not saying anything, which is, by the way, saying something, even in the not showing up and the not saying is saying to you, your pain is makes me uncomfortable. It's too hard for me. Um, so I just love all these stories, especially, frankly, of male friends who are sort of getting out of their own way and getting out of their own discomfort about being around someone in pain and just showing up. Yeah. That's yeah. quite, quite beautiful. I'd love for you to explore... Um, some of the themes that you've written about and you and I talked about before about the work of grief, you use that expression, you've used that expression a lot in your writing. Um, and I think, thankfully, in my opinion, there sort of used to be the sort of stages theory of grief that was like, we'll get through it and then be done at some point. And now many of us are thinking about grief as a journey. I often refer to grief as my inconsistent and irritating and sometimes comforting travel companion along my journey for the rest of the life. And you talked a lot about the work of grief, the body work of grief, the emotional work of grief, the writing work of grief. Can you tell me a little bit about 
how that's evolved for you? What does that look like for you? Maybe what did it look like in the beginning and what does it look like now? Yeah. The work of grief. Um, well, I mean, there's work. I think in, we have a poor vocabulary for this in English. Um, you know, we've got 40 different ways to talk about killing somebody and we've got one word for love that expresses so many different things. And we've got one word for work, you know, which is right. the occupation, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just the, the quotidian get shit done aspect of everything in our lives. Right. And then, um, you know, we talk about, um, you know, the unpaid labor of caregivers, right. And the unpaid labor of moms and dads who stay home to be with family while the other spouse goes out and does, you know, the income work, right? So there's income work and then there's family work. And yeah. it's just an aspect of that, right? It's a, it's a facet of work that if you just consider all the stuff that you need to do every day, right? You fold the laundry, you make lunch for your kids, you drive. I mean, a that's lot. all just In stuff San Diego, probably in Austin, yeah. you drive a lot and you drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, the, when you're grieving, there's this, it's an, it's an extra job. It's a thing that, that needs to get done every day. Um, and you're going to do it one way or the other. You're, you're, you're doing the labor one way or the other. It's just, if you're, if you're conscious of it, I think you can make a little better effort at it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, taking time to recognize the pain that you're in. Uh, for me, it's all, it's a lot of the work is writing. I just, I know that I feel better after I spend half an hour in the morning putting something in a journal and it's not even grief related, but I just know that it's, it's the stream of thoughts that are happening in your mind as a result like of going through mm -hmm. an event like this. And, you know, we talk about PTSD as a function of this. If you're not like, if you're not just putting your hand in the stream and getting wet and pulling out a fish or I don't know yeah. what the metaphor is, yeah, but yeah, like, you yeah. gotta do it. You gotta do that thing. Um, and what you're pulling out isn't always brilliant. It's no. not like, that's not the purpose. It's just that there's, you, I, I write to figure out what I'm thinking. What is in the stream? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we are always having conversations and stories going on in our heads all the time. We're just not tuned into it. And and for mm -hmm. you, I use writing in that way too. Other people use creative and other expressions, movement. Mm -hmm. It's a way of actually quieting and tuning into what what are those stories that are, are happening. And sometimes yeah. the stories are jumbled and mumbled and sometimes they're poetry in motion. And yeah. Had you been a writer? Mm -hmm. Had writing been a vehicle that you had employed in your life sort of before losing Will? So it was something that you could kind of come to easily? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the tendencies that we have become maybe a little bit stronger after grief. You really do lean on them more, pay attention to them more. Um, so writing, so I graduated with a degree in creative writing and photography. Awesome, um, very employable. And I became a technologist. I don't know how, but that's how that works. Um, but I hadn't really written much at all since college. Um, I, I knew that I didn't want to be a writer, quote unquote, um, and I still don't want to be a writer. Um, but I just know that there's voices in my head, and um, I like to 
I like to listen to them and I like to say what they're saying. So that's, that's what happens. That's why I was drawn to it from an early age. Um, And it's genetic. I'm sure my dad is a writer. You know, we have, we have creative people in our family. So it was natural. Yeah. Um, But yeah, my, um, my need to write grew and, you know, I'd always, I'd always thought maybe one day I would come back to it at some point, maybe in retirement. Um, but when Will died, I was like, Oh, yep. I know how to, I know how to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to get this stuff down on paper and, and, and figure it out. What has processing grief look like for David and for Stephanie and how, how does how do them how is it that they are working through their grief and how does that align or not with your practices? The uh, the outward the outward expression from Stephanie and David is I think they're just much more private people. So their processing of grief is is more just in talking about him around the house. Um, you know, Stephanie has really dived into her friend set and making, you know, she's a very introverted um, person who forms close friendships and tends not to span out too much. Um, that's changed actually. And she's been a lot more part of like book clubs and um, I think realized that there's a lot of power and company and power and community. And so she's been more a part of that. That's been you know, a change for her. David is hard, you know, he's still very young and we're, we're, you know, we're struggling to find appropriate outlets for him. He, he, you know, we're trying not to be too permissive and things like letting him video game, which he loves to do. Okay. Um, And I know that that's part of his way of processing grief is just go have fun. Um, But that shit's addictive. And, you know, we can't just let them spend 12 hours a day on the Xbox. So, um, you know, does he write? Does he paint? Not so much. You know, does he have close friendships? That even is a you know, question mark for us. Um, he's in therapy and we're really trying to, you know, tell him it's okay to, to get into a space where you're figuring out your grief. Um, yeah. But he's young, you know, he's 12 and yeah. he's like, I got other stuff to do, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think actually he's probably a lot more resilient than we give him, than, than we are. Um, you know, it takes, it takes effort for Stephanie and I to, to work through our group grief. David, it, I don't think it's taking much effort. I think he's just sort of, he's moving you know, along. I don't know. It's just a different thing when you're, when you're younger, I guess. Yeah. And so given that you speak of Will all the time in the house and you now have Miss Sloan, who's two, mm-hmm. how have you explained to her who Will is and how, what does that language look like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, she's, she's really much too young to really yeah. understand of it. Of course, of um, course. But, but I assume you're practicing we, a kind of language with her and yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, she, she'll go up to a picture of him and say, that's Will. Right. Like she knows, she knows Will as a person and she can recognize him by sight. Um, you know, I don't think she understands that Will is sort of like David, her brother, but, um, 
but she's she's definitely in the fold you know yeah um, yeah and I, i'm really excited to be able to kind of share with her videos and stories about well when she gets older and kind of can, can appreciate them yeah um but yeah she'll grow up with an appreciation of, of will for sure What I wanted to talk with you about was the ways in which you found um, Stephanie and yourself becoming closer after the loss, which sometimes the loss of a child in particular uh, for losses um, can break families apart. And I was just sharing with our listeners the beautiful words you wrote about um, what that was like for you. You said, there's nobody in the world who gets me like she does. Now more than ever, we are fixed to each other. Mm. Granite boulders tossed by a flood onto a canyon floor. Grief. Mm. You wrote that. Damn. Damn, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. I would really love to know, because like I said, I think for so many people, they're so um, consumed by their grief and their own navigating of their own grief journey it's it breaks families apart because they can't hold each other you know along the way what what has traveling this along with her look like for you what do you think has allowed you guys to come together closer as opposed to be torn apart as happens for so many people um well you know how they say about really intense jobs like the presidency or something like that it doesn't it, it it reveals who you are. Yes. Right. Um, and it's, I think the same is true for really intense and intense, intense situations. Um, maybe not necessarily who you are. I suppose it could do that as well. And, but it definitely reveals what the relationship is and what it's set up for. Yeah. And the way that I think just the, our natural ability to uh, show up for one another um, and to support one another and believe in one another and, and respect one another was, was enhanced by Will's passing. Um, You know, that was revealed by by the stress of losing a loved one, not, um, not changed by it. Right. It wasn't something that became created all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. We were watching The Crown last night. Stephanie's guilty pleasure is watching British melodramas. Me too. Because they're good. <laughs> I mean, who, who doesn't who like doesn't? British doesn't? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a point in one of the episodes where Lord Mountbatten, Lord Mountbatten is addressing uh, like a military college or something like that. And he says that for the, I guess it was the labor government at that time, he felt very butthurt by them and was railing against them. And he was saying, you know, for them, uh, World War II and World War One weren't the cauldrons, you know, that forged something strong like it is for us. They were, it was, they had melted under that heat. Mm. And uh, it's a nice, you know, for all his ills and you know what point he was trying to make, I'm not sure I'm a hundred percent on board with, but uh, <laughs> the metaphor is but quite it's a apt. Good metaphor, right? And there's there's a there's a point at which there can be a forging effect for this 
light and heat yeah. um, as opposed to a destructive effect. It helps create something. So, you know, we definitely came out of the other side with more of our uh, love feeling stronger and our love for each other feeling stronger and our ability to tackle stress, everyday stress, you know, increased and our ability to not care about things that don't matter improved. And I'm not saying that there weren't days where, you know, we stumbled and fell, but, um, but there, there definitely was a sense that there's just no, there's just no not being together anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's um, beautiful. And I will say this, that, you know, Stephanie, Stephanie has expressed several times that she's, um, you know, there's, there's this idea that you've already faced the worst. There's nothing, there's nothing worse than this. Right. And, um, and there's two sides to that. And it, and I, I have sometimes a little difficulty when she says that, because it's almost like, like there's this, there's this point where, you know, you just throw your hands up and you give up, you know, I've already faced the worst. I'm going to throw my hands up. <laughs> um, and, and I don't, I don't, she's not saying that, but sometimes it sometimes comes across as that, Yeah. that you don't care, or you're apathetic or that you're, you're above it somehow. And it's not it at all. Mm -hmm. It's, it's that, you know, you have power. And you know you're not scared, and you're you're just not phased by this problem, whatever it is. I think we develop in the face of grief, especially un out of order loss like yours, or you know, sort of traumatic or tragic loss. We discover a kind of um, strength, and that word can be overused too in grief. So I'm mindful even as I'm saying that word, but out of our utter brokenness and shattered narratives and our shattered lives, uh, I think so many of us discover when we look back down the road a year or two years or ten years later, a kind of strength and armor and capacity maybe that we didn't, we couldn't possibly have recognized in the moment because we were just walking around as wounded souls in mm -hmm. the world. But I do think there is something to what she is saying in that I have been through the worst. I'm still here, which means mm -hmm. there's some kind of capacity to regenerate. And yeah, it's quite lovely. And, uh, you know, you said you sort of hate some of those expressions. And one of the things I often talk about is the expressions that people often use when they're trying to show up and be in community with you and sort of attend to to your loss. And um, I've written quite a bit about it, and I've actually recently launched a line of empathy cards, one of which has a list of all the absolute things that I hate people saying, and then there's a slight expletive on the inside of the card about what people can do with those messages. But <laughs> I'll share that with you another day. Mm -hmm. um, but what – so not to sort of jump down people's throat, but what have been the expressions or the language that you have – you would like people to stop using? And maybe what has been the language or the expressions of of showing up that you would encourage people to do more of? sort of maybe on, on both sides, whichever 
alley you want to go down, go for it. Yeah. Well, uh, let's go down the cards. Um, I, I, the best, the absolute best condolence card that I got yeah. uh, was uh, three words. And the, it goes like this. Fuck fucking everything. Yep. Yep. And, you know, it's true. You know, it's true whenever anybody is feeling pain or expressing disappointment, um, you know, your job is not to debate them. Your job is not to say, oh, I'm, I, know, I can't imagine what that might feel like or any of the cliches. It's just to sit there and go, yeah, that sucks. That this, sucks so bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, I have a card that says this is fucking bullshit. I know yeah. this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean – because to say anything else is just superfluous. It's just off the mark. Yeah. 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 I love that. You know, um, I think it's appropriate to say, um, like, people stumble into it all the time when they say, how many kids do you have? And then, yeah. you know, if I'm feeling generous, I'll tell them three yeah. and one is dead. And then they'll say, I'm sorry. And then I'll say, uh, thank you. You know, and that's, I think it's, it's better to that, that little back and forth, as I've said, it is important to do exactly that way. Because if you say, oh no, it's okay. Then, you know, you're kind of lying. Yeah. It's it's not okay. okay. And now you've tried to make it okay for them. You know, it's like you've tried to relieve the situation for them. Yeah. Yeah. But if you just say, you know, acknowledge it and then they say, sorry. And then you say, thank you. Then it's like, I get it. You stumbled into it. I'm not pulling away from you. You're not pulling away from me. We're just going to acknowledge the fact that this is they're out there now. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be a part of this conversation. Yeah. Like it wasn't before. Now it doesn't, it still doesn't have to be. And that's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We can talk about whatever small talk or business talk or whatever it is that we were, that led us to this moment anyway. Yeah. I so. love that. Um, that's a great reminder for me as the griever because sometimes I rail against the I'm sorry for your loss expression. Um, it it mm-hmm. kind of grates on my nerves because I often say what I just said, which is because then it sort of puts the griever in the situation of saying things like, oh, it's okay. And now we're – you were supposed to be consoling us and now we're somehow consoling you. And how the <laughs> hell did that happen? Which happens, by the way, I'm sure you've had that experience all the time in grief mm-hmm. conversations. But I love that you – have shortened that and have really changed the dynamic of that kind of conversation by just saying thank you. Mm -hmm. That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. One of the things that happens um, for so many of us is um, this podcast is called Grief is a Sneaky Bitch because... Uh, one of the things I discovered early on, and it came out of an expression I said to a new friend I made after I lost my husband, and I think we can talk about sometimes the new friends who didn't know your loved one are able to show up for you sometimes in ways that your friends who are also grieving just can't. But anyhow, I found myself saying to her very early on when I thought I was having one of my first good days, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. then um, I stumbled across, I didn't even know I had in my purse, a picture um, of Eric and I the year before he mm. passed away. And just in the middle of kind of a gathering, I had finally gotten the courage to go to just, you know, pouring, crying, bawling like a 
just and then everybody was doing that like oh my god the widow's crying <laughs> should we look at her should we not look yeah. at her yeah. yeah so grief is a grief is a thinking bitch and and i think one of the things that people don't quite understand is that it doesn't just happen I know you wrote about sort of anticipating that one-year anniversary of Will's loss. You know, mm-hmm. yes, of course, it happens on sort of momentous days, on birthdays and and the anniversary of losses. Can you share a little bit about what what brings Will to mind for you? You shared earlier about the pennies, mm-hmm. and and that reminds you of Will. And what do what do those those reminders of Will? How did it feel when those reminders first came along in the earlier days of your grief? And now what? happens when those reminders of of him come along. I know you wrote in your article something about dragonflies being a, a reminder. Yeah. Tell me a little bit yeah. about when grief shows up, that sneaky bitch. Uh-huh. Well, um, I mean, she's not so sneaky anymore because we have perpetual reminders yeah. in our social media. Like they do that. This was what was happening five years ago. Right. Thing or... The time hop. And so, oh my God. And I was such a prolific documenter of our lives. Like it's just every day there's some new reminder. In fact, I don't, I don't even look at those anymore. No. Um, I just ignore them. Um, I know people love them and I don't begrudge them that, but it's, I just know that that's a place I don't want to go right now. Um, so, so there's that. Um, she's persistent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. She's, oh, yes. She's always. Trying to steal a cookie from the cookie jar. <laughs> Lurking around the corner. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, 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 we see it a lot now with, with Sloan. Um, so Will died when he was four and a half, and she's two. And so the real, the real Will memories are now starting to come up for me when, when I see what she's doing. Mm. Um, because... She has so many of the same idiosyncrasies and behaviors or sounds or smells or whatever. You know, she just does these things that are so well. That's what we say. That's so well. That's so well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, what, that, those, that's a point. Um, and that's happening all the time and at random. Um, what else? The pennies, we see those. In fact, our friends um, are often finding pennies and sending us pictures of it or posting them. Um, we have dragonflies is my thing. Um, just one of our first trips we took, we went down to Mexico and, um, there was a dragonfly that wouldn't leave us alone. I don't even know if it was one, probably many, but in any case, <laughs> in your mind, it had, was one. Yeah. Yeah. The place we were staying at had this dragon, very persistent dragonfly. And then as I realized that what, you know, there's a, some religious and historical significance to dragonflies. I was like, oh, well, this is a thing. I can do this. And, you know, we went to Vietnam and we're riding bikes in the um, in the, the Delta, which is very swampy. And dragonflies abound, you know. And so there's, I don't know, just, and then every once in a while you just see them and you're like, damn, that's so cool. They're the coolest. Yeah, yeah. So I've made that a part of my thing. Um, it's me, Stephanie's. Stephanie's not on the dragonfly tip. That doesn't have to be her <laughs> That's thing. okay. You can have your own yeah. special. Yeah. Um, and what is the gosh. experience like? So for me, in the beginning, I, I, I guess it would catch me off guard. In some ways, it it had a duality to it because in some ways, it sort of caught me off guard and kicked me in the ass a little bit, and I felt a kind of pain that terrified me. 
at the same time, it was so comforting because it's when I felt so close to Eric. It was like a way in Mm -hmm. which he was there with me. So it was, but in the beginning, it was so confusing because it, like both of those emotions kind of would show up in equal force, Mm -hmm. probably making me appear a crazy person to those around me (laughs) Mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. they were subject to my presence. So when those memories come in the beginning, was it harder than than joy and but now there's maybe more sweetness and joy how do those experiences show up for you the random points yeah. at which your the memory is being invoked yeah um well we had one you know earlier when i you know suddenly remembered what was so important for me after he died the um you yeah. know smelling him yeah and uh and i had you know, those memories you kind of keep off away from you for a while, and then they be, then they pop right into your face, and you, f- you feel how strongly they were. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I write about it, so I can go back to my writing and get immediately back into that feeling space that I was in when I needed to write that thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you're capturing lightning in a bottle or whatever it is, so you can just get it, right? Yeah. Um, so that, you know, like today... Um, we had a more of a bittersweet one where, uh, we put the elf on the shelf out finally, and David's too old for that, but Sloan isn't. And so we inaugurated her to it today and she's like, what's this elf on the shelf thing? And so we're reading the book to her. And at the end, they have this place where you can put in the name of the elf and Will had named the elf and it was Gingy Gingerbread. (laughs) (laughs) And we're laughing and crying at the same time because it's like, damn that we weren't ready for that. Like that came out of nowhere, but, um, but he's, you know, he has a a whale he named Whaley and, you know, a giraffe he named Spotsy. And it's just, he wasn't super inventive about the names. It's just a very funny thing that we, we thought was hilarious about him. And so that just came right up. Mm. Um, but you know, we, we had a laugh and a cry. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, there's I in the public. I am much. It's much easier for me to to kind of shut it down. Yeah. And and I'm conscious that I'm doing it, and I'm and I kind of put a pin in it. You know, I'm like I need to come back to this later. I'm not going to do this right now. And even though I'm surrounded by people who know and love me and yeah. and are accepting of it, um, I'm just not. I'm I'm trying to be professional when I'm at work, and I'm. I'm just not going to let that happen right now. But I'm also being deliberate about knowing that I'm doing that. And at some point, I'm going to come back to it. Well, it sounds like you're deliberate. And it's not that you're eschewing it forever. You're saying this isn't the space. But you sound like you have a very healthy practice. You said sort of if a few days go by, you know you sort of, I don't want to say schedule your time. But you you seem very deliberate in terms of knowing that if you put off that grief work for today, it's going to be there tomorrow and you show up ready to, to do the yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that the, the, the point at which it comes up the most is not necessarily, uh, things that remind me of well, but just things that bring out emotion in me. Mm-hmm. So I'm much more likely to cry during a movie or an episode of a TV show now than I ever have been. I mean, I would cry at Pampers commercials. Who doesn't? Yeah, but like obviously. Anytime there's a sad thing happening in a movie or, 
someone showing gratitude or anything. I mean, it has nothing to do with will, but mm -hmm. I am definitely close to the, those emotions are definitely close to the surface now. So, you know, when I'm sitting on the couch with family, boom, the tears come out. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't even have to be will related. It can just, it just is that there is this, this, this constantly adjusting, uh, what is it? It's the, it's the, uh, fullness of the bucket, right? The rain, the rain bucket is filled and filled mm -hmm. and filled and eventually it's going to spill over. Um, there's that happening. And so, yeah. Yeah. What causes the rain? Anything. Yeah. Yeah. But the, our memories live kind of in our, in our feelings and in our emotions too. And so you've been doing this work and carrying the memory of well forward means your emotions are, you're so much more in tuned with your emotions the entire spectrum be. of emotions, yeah, too. I think to... that's the thing about grief. It's is is, I think yeah. that doing the grief work allows us to tap in so much more vibrantly to the entire rainbow of our yeah. to, of our emotions. I do want to say I want so I want to plug um, therapy. Yeah, please let's do it. You know that's right. my background. So <laughs> whoop whoop to the therapists out there. Yeah. Um, so you know, Will drowned, and it was a very traumatic event. There was you know, emergency vehicles and hospitals and, you know, the seeing his, you know, lifeless body, very traumatic. Um, and any, you know, anybody who's gone through hospice will tell you there's a lot of trauma in that. And anybody who's been in, um, you know, obviously war, this is PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, I had, so I've had a, a couple of different therapists, but what I found very, very effective is, uh, EMDR and, um, and it, what has, what it's been able to do is it's been able to kind of, I don't know if this is backed up by science, science or theory, but the way that I've experienced EMDR is that, is that I can have the memory without it, without it sending me down a path. Yeah. Right. Like I can, and, and you know, I'm saying the traumatic event, I can picture it. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't invade my emotional space the way that it would have beforehand or if I hadn't done EMDR. Um, it's almost off in its own bubble. And at the same time, it's not suppressing it. It's not like medication, you know, it's not suppressing the feeling. Right. It's only making it so that you can you can process both mm -hmm. both things happening at the same time. This you know this very traumatic, scary memory, along with the necessary component of being like sad. Yeah, yeah, right? and recognizing it. So it's really interesting to be able to do get to that space where, you know, obviously anytime I see a pool, I think of Will, but I'm not shaken. Mm, you're not reliving the moments. Yeah. 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 My last guest actually talked about EMDR and I have used EMDR as myself to process some of the scary moments at the end of Eric's life. And mm. I think when you're faced with that trauma, our brain isn't able to actually make a story of that experience, which is how we process you know, our lives. We sort of turn our experiences into stories and it's just stuck there. And so EMDR allows us to not, like you said, suppress it or erase it, but actually move it to different parts of our brain so that we can actually 
have have the lived so that we're not reliving the experience. It's sort of like yeah. become storied yeah. in a way. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. You're not back in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, in that sort of, you know, fight or flight. Exactly. It's it's living in a different part of your your nervous system. And I think, I don't know for you, I was desperate to figure out a way to recall. For me, I, I did the EMDR for the nine hours that I laid in bed with Eric until he passed mm. in my arms. And there was hospitals and lots of triggers that were sending me into sort of episodes mm-hmm. of PTSD. Mm-hmm. And one of my nervousness about doing it, and I, I'm curious to know if you had this as well or not, was as terrifying and triggering as those events were, I was still having a presence about that moment. And I was worried that if I worked through it with EMDR, some other therapy, I wasn't going to be able to recall those last moments that I spent with Eric, the feel of his hands and the smell. Yeah. 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 Did you have some nervousness about processing that or? Absolutely. Um, you know, you get tied to the event in a way. You're like, no, this is mine. Like, I do not want to lose this thing. I don't care how scary it is, but this is mine. Yeah. And it's really, really important for me to go to my deathbed with that memory. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and, you know, there's, it's that, it's because it's that important, you don't want your therapist to fuck that shit right, up. exactly. Like, I am <laughs> trusting you with the single most important memory of my life. So, yeah, exactly. no pressure. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely, I do, I will say as a plug, not everybody as a therapist, like, I was a therapist, practicing therapist for a long time, but I wasn't trained in EMDR, so do not have use a therapist who isn't trained in that. It's a very specific practice. But if you yeah. can find one who does that work, I think it's... Um, yeah, incredibly transformational. Yeah, and you'll find that you'll find that in people who are working with veterans. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, it's just a very common um, practice for for PTSD. And so, you know, those those therapists have that experience that yeah. can that can work it. Yeah. Um, I found a woman who um, who deals with childhood trauma, and so she she has. Um, you know, a background in in EMDR with children and working with, you know, abuse and neglect because obviously that can be um, the same sort of issues. So, um, so, you know, there's all types of folks who use EMDR um, in their regular therapy, but just kind of look for those additional signs of like, oh yeah, this is the kind of therapy they do. And it wouldn't, it would warrant someone working with people who have PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I'm glad you shared that. That's really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of we need to do whatever we can, access whatever resources we can to be able to travel this grief journey and do it in a way that allows us to feel feel all the feels, you know, mm-hmm. and not be stuck in a moment and to be able to integrate those experiences and those memories as we carry them and ourselves forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else you feel like you want the listeners of the show to know about your experience or something you wished maybe you would have known or others would have known um, before you had this experience of losing Will? There's not a single person that I know who is grieving. And let's face it, we're all grieving. So there's not a single person who's some factor of their grieving is also guilt. 
Now for us, because it was our child and because it was an accident, um, maybe that's a little more amplified. But the most helpful thing in our process for grief and recovery in the aftermath, I think came within the first couple of hours when a nurse came up to me and my wife and held our hands and looked us in the eyes and sat us down and said, this is not your fault. And then proceeded to tell us why. And because she did that in the moment, because she did it in that moment, I think it staved off a whole hell of a lot of complicating factors in grief. So whoever you are and whatever the source for your grief, I'm sure you're carrying a lot of that guilt, a lot of that responsibility you feel falls on your shoulders. And I just want you to know that it's not your fault. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate your being so open and honest and um, thoughtful about sharing your story. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Y'all, Kelly Abbott's words moved me. His loving celebration of Will's life inspires me. His honest and frank approach to the work of grief resonates so deeply for me as I travel my own grief journey. I am grateful to him for his vulnerability and to you for your ability to hold space for his story today. You can find the article we referenced in today's episode, Grief Work, Bereavement and Mourning, on medium.com. The link is also in my show notes for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm thrilled to share that we have at least four more incredible interviews coming your way this season. From a man who turned the mental health struggles around the loss of his father into a nonprofit foundation benefiting families impacted by cancer, to a powerhouse CEO of a skincare line used by celebrities who is transforming the loss of her business partner and husband into a shining light that is guiding her path forward. We have creatives talking about the embodied trauma of losing a loved one and international filmmakers who were commissioned to tell a story of grief and the discovery process they've been on since the project began. Y'all, I love creating and hosting this podcast series. With the increasing number of downloads and positive feedback messages I'm getting, I see there are a growing number of you who are finding it valuable too. That's why I've launched a Patreon campaign and would love a handful of listeners to come along this journey with me by investing in this podcast series. I could really use your support and in exchange, you'll get some way cool perks like Grief is a Sneaky Bitch t-shirts, stickers, behind-the-scenes vlogs of my challenges and my triumphs, and, well, a lot more. Please visit my Patreon page to learn more about how you can accompany me on this journey. You can find the link in the show notes from today's episode. I also want to say thank you to the growing list of listeners and subscribers to this show. If you haven't already, please subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. 
Also, you can get news about upcoming episodes by following me on your favorite social media site at Reimagining Grief. As a bonus, you will get a daily note from me in your newsfeed. I send a daily invitation, well, each day, to invite you to reflect on some aspect of this grief journey we are all on. This is Lisa Kefauver, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>